We started last week, we started a new series that is going to kind of be the hallmark for, I won't even say for this year, it may be for longer than this year. I really believe that this is where God is calling the church, at least this church. I can't speak for other churches, I can only speak for this church. Every time I open my Bible or go into some subject, it comes back to these verses. It comes back to these verses. It comes back to these verses. Every time I see something that I just, you know, we need to talk about this, it ties back into these verses. And so we're going to just begin. We began last week to, inter- not well, last week we had a speaker. The week before we began to introduce this subject. Today we're going to kind of lay a foundation for it, and then we'll begin to get into it. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll just read a little bit here, and then I'm going to go back into something. What he's talking about here says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one God, body, one Spirit, just as you are called, and one calling to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Breathe. Okay. But to each one of us, so he's talking about who he is, but to each one of us, that includes you, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now let's drop, drop down to verse 11, because now he talks about the gifts. And he himself, that's God, gave some of these gifts as apostles, as prophets, as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And for what purpose were these gifts given? For the equipping of the saints. And who are the saints? That's all of us. To do the work of the ministry. So the work of the ministry is to be done by the saints, not the professional minister. We have this idea in our world today that the ministry is a profession. The ministry is what we're all called to do. Those gifts that are referred to in verse 11 are given to the church in order to equip all of us, including those gifts, to do the work of the ministry. Notice it's work. I only got one amen on that. That's okay. We'll get there. The work of the ministry for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. So the work of the ministry, and by the way, the word ministry just means to serve. The work of service that we're called to is for the purpose of the building up of the body of Christ. And we'll talk more about that as we get further into this. And, And here's the goal of it. Until we all come to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect, that word means a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that, in other words, God's working in the church until we all come to the place where we have been matured to the point that we look on the outside like Christ. I don't mean have a beard. I mean we talk like Him. We think like Him. We act like Him. We do the things that He did because He told His disciples, the works that I do show you doing greater works because I go to the Father. So the body of Christ is to do His works. We are His body. So we're to be equipped so that we can do those works, so that we can come to the fullness of the stature of Christ, so that we're no longer children. Now, to no longer be children implies a process of growing up and maturing. So that we're no longer be children tossed about to and fro and carried by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, the cunning craftiness of deceivers. We're going to go through all this. But speaking the truth in love, that's the process by which we do this, we may grow up. And that's what this series is all about. It's about growing up. Growing up spiritually, because that's what God is calling us to do. Grow up in all things into Him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and knit together by that which every joint supplies. You're a joint. 
You're a joint that is to supply something to the body of Christ. And it's as each part of us begin to supply our portion, then the body of Christ is able to do what it's called to do. To the effective working of which each part does its share and causes the growth of the body for the edifying or building up of itself in love. But it starts with these words, and that's what we're going to look at today. I, therefore, and I've taught you over and over again in the last time I mentioned this again. The word therefore tells me that everything that's about to be said is based on what he just said. What he's about to say is what this letter, because Paul wrote this as a letter to the church at Ephesus. What he's about to say is what this letter was, its purpose was. But before he began to tell them what he wanted to tell them, he spent three chapters, and of course he didn't write them in chapters, but he spent what we identify as three chapters preparing them so that they could hear what he was about to say to them. Are you with me? So we're, this morning, we're going to go back and look at that preparation. Because if they needed it, how much more do we needed it? need it? So go with me to chapter 1. And as we do this, I want to just tell you a little story. We kind of make this real, more real to us. It helps, I find, if we get outside of church thinking and we get into what we think, real thinking out there. You understand what I'm saying? And so... so I remember as a, I don't remember when I heard this. I remember whether I heard the story or I read the story. So I can't tell you that I know it's true. I can just tell you that I heard the story from somewhere. And I believe it's true because it makes sense with what, what followed up. Back in the early part of the century, actually the turn of the last century, one of the most successful businessmen in the world was a man named John D. Rockefeller who founded what became Standard Oil. And he developed essentially a monopoly. He became the source of oil to this nation. He owned every, his companies owned everything from the drilling rigs and the drilling fields all the way up to the distribution uh, trucks and distribution companies that distributed to the gas stations and even the gas stations. So he owned everything. Multi, multi, multi-millionaire back when there was no income tax. We won't go there. But what he did, he was a wise man. He had many faults and things like that, but he was raised in a Christian family. One of the things he learned to do is tithe. In fact, at one point, he was trying to give all his money away, and the more he gave away, the more he got. Isn't that interesting? He formed the, 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 what we call the March of Dimes. He just Because he went out there, he heard this cause, decided to give away his money by laying down dimes one after the other for a mile down Fifth Avenue in New York City, if I understand the story correctly. But he became aware as a father that he had children. He had, I don't remember, four or five children. And he was concerned for them because he understood that as he grew up, what he had, what he had accumulated and developed, he had developed not because he would started out wealthy, because he'd started out very poor, but he had developed skills and disciplines and maturities that allowed him to learn how to, 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 to grow in business and become successful. And he recognized that his children were in some ways at a disadvantage because they didn't start out like he did, and therefore they may not have learned the things he learned. So he did a very interesting thing with them. He made each one of his children go to work in one of his companies under a different name, starting at the lowest possible position. So imagine that. You're Nelson Rockefeller. 
and you're 15 years old or 14 years old and you show up for your first day on the job as the assistant to the assistant janitor with the name of Smith on your name tag and your supervisor doesn't know who you are and his supervisor doesn't know who you are and the men and the people you're working with don't know who you are. They just think you're some young kid that's been hired and they don't know why you've been hired. And the only person in that whole company that knows who you are is the manager of that plant. Imagine what a different attitude. Now, he did. The result of his doing that is his children all learned to be responsible, and every one of them became a productive member of society. One of them became governor of New York. He ran for, his, he ran for Nelson. He ran for, uh, for uh, president, if I remember correctly. Uh, and there were others. There were human, tremendous humanitarians. They, they had a sense of responsibility to the community because they didn't take the money that they had and the wealth that they had for granted. I'm not saying they were perfect and didn't make mistakes, but they matured and were able to handle what was put into their hands. When many children of wealthy people may know how to handle the wealth, but they don't know how to handle the responsibility. In other words, they haven't been taught to mature. Imagine your young Nelson Rockefeller, 14 years of age, because back then they could do that, working in this company, being treated like everybody else, every other assistant to the assistant janitor. And yet down inside you, you can go through all that because you have a different image of yourself than the kid you're working next to. Because although you're wearing the same the same uh, uh, clothes he's wearing, the same uniform, although you just have a general name on your name, it's not your real name. Although you're being treated like everybody else and having to do the same hard work everybody else has to do, somewhere down inside of you, you recognize that your identity, you recognize that there is, there is a destiny for you and an identity that you have that even though you're going through hard times right now and learning all, but you're going through it for the purpose of living a lesson, learning a lesson so that you can fulfill the destiny which has been given to you. So imagine when you're going through as young Nelson is and you're, you've had a day when you've been just, you know, you've been, Basically, gold told to sit in the corner. You've been uprated and insulted and treated like you were dirt. And I don't know if he was, but let's just assume for our purposes he was. Treated like you were dirt. And the people over you mistreated you. you were, they, 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 they picked on you. They called you names. And, but you somehow you're able to keep your mouth shut. You took notes. <laughs> what was your name again? <laughs> Somehow you could keep your mouth shut. Somehow you, because you knew the reason you were there was something was to be developed in you so that when your destiny was handed to you, you would have developed the character and maturity to fulfill it with grace. So you looked at the challenges of your job not as something to beat you down, not as something to hold you back, but you saw them as opportunities to grow and mature. And the reason you could do that is because you, you knew inside of you who you really were and you knew inside of you 
who your father really was. And you knew inside of you what your destiny really was. So you could look at all this phase of your life instead of a difficult time to go to, through, but you saw it as a growing time. But see, we've come into our walk with the Lord just the opposite. Nelson Rockefeller grew up knowing who he was. He sat around the kitchen table, or I guess he didn't sit. He sat around the dining room table with all the servants and all the people serving him and and, and bowing down to him and, and calling him sir and all that, developing in him the image of who he was, the son of this wealthy man and powerful man in this nation. That was already ingrained in him. What he had to go was put that aside so that he could learn the character that he needed to fulfill that in a mature way. But see, we're the opposite. When God comes into your life and, God, and you're born again, He meets you where you are. We're, we're, we're the assistant to the assistant to the assistant janitor. We're used to what that's like. We're used to being, dealing with, with the situations of life. But once you become a child of God, what happens is your, your destiny has changed. Your destiny is no longer to be the senior janitor. You are a child of the owner of the company. You are a child of the chairman of the board. You are a child of not the most famous, not the most wealthy and most powerful man in the country. You are a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the source of all authority and all power for all time. And so what the Apostle Paul realized is in order for you to grow and mature, for the Ephesians to grow and mature, because he said, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. Well, let's read what he says. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Nelson Rockefeller had a calling. And Paul is saying to these Ephesians, I want to call you up to act like who you are. But before he could do that, he had to remind them or tell them for the first time who they really were. So we're going to take a little time today to go back and look at who you really are. We're going to ask you for a moment to take your assistant to the assistant to the assistant janitor uniform and just hang it up right now, okay? And, and come with me because we're going to come back to the mansion. And we're going to take a little tour of the mansion that you belong in, that you're part of, of what God has done for you and who you are in God's eyes. Because we cannot, you will not, you will only grow up to the, you will only aspire and have an ambition to reach the calling when you believe it's something that you're entitled to. Amen. And so the Apostle Paul has to show them again, this is who you are. This is what God's done for you. This is not who you will become when you do the things I'm telling you to do. This is who you are now. Now what he says, well, I want you to begin to act like who you are. But you won't act like who you are if you don't begin to believe who you are. So go back with me now to chapter 1, and we'll begin to look at some of these things. This is some of the richest scripture in the Bible. Some of the richest scripture in the Bible, and I'm going to have to discipline myself not to stop and go off on some of this. Ephesians 1, verse 1, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Now, here we're going to start listing these off. Just as He chose us in Him. 
the first thing I want you to see is you're chosen. You did not choose him. John chapter 15. Jesus said to his disciples, one of the last things he said to them, understand this, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I don't know if you ever went through this as a child, but I did. I was, you know, we, I played with, you play with kids and play games with kids, you know, baseball games and things like that. I was never what you would, I was, I was athletically inclined. I was just not athletically equipped. <laughs> now, I love sports. I just didn't have the strength or the skill to do that. I was not what you would consider an athlete, even though I enjoyed athletics. So when there was a time to choose a team, I was just hoping I'd get chosen. <laughs> there was always that kid that would get chosen first. I was speaking on uh, uh, Friday with, with one of my brothers, my stepbrother, who is four years younger than I am. And it was his birthday, so I called him to wish him happy birthday. And he says, you know, I, I keep thinking I'm going to catch up to you someday. And I said, well, you're talking about age. I said, when you catch up with me, that's not good news for me. <laughs> <laughs> I said, but that's interesting. Growing up, I always felt as if I were behind you except in everything with age. Because he's one of those kids that can just do anything. I mean, he could just, you know, he could just, whatever he started out to do, he just did it. He would go do it and figure out later whether it was possible. <laughs> I was reminding him of the story. He, I remember I still seeing him climbing a tree. Because he didn't know what he could climb, so he just climbed it. He got to the top and he slipped and he bounced down, flipping off of every branch. Hit the ground on his back, got up, shook himself up and went back up it again. I went in the house. <laughs> so when it came time to be chosen on a team, when there was an opportunity to be selected, I was just, you know, hoping I was going to get chosen. And if I got chosen, that was, oh, it was wonderful. Even though I was last, at least I wasn't the one kid that they left there. Oh, we got to do something with you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And then there was a time about 44 years ago when I met a young lady out in Ohio. You know, and, I, and we get talking to her on the phone. And I saw her a second time, and suddenly I realized she liked me. And as we developed a relationship, I realized she wanted me. She'd chosen me. And it just opened my heart up to her that I was special enough. And she was popular, that of all the guys that she'd known and, and grown up and was, could have, she was the queen of things in her school. I was nothing like that in my school. That she would want me? It just, my heart just swelled up. And I was praying through some of this the other day, and these stories were coming back to me. Because what the Lord was bringing, he says, and I've chosen you. I remember how special I felt when it dawned on me that she was interested in me. I think she was only the second date I ever had, and that was in college. I was very shy. And she, I know it's hard for you to believe, but I'm a shy person. <laughs> that she wanted me? 
And God began to bring me back and remind me of those emotions that I felt. Because how much more when it dawns on me, He wanted me. See, somewhere inside I think we've convinced God to accept us. I told you it's going to be hard to get through all these. That we've convinced God to accept us. If you know, well, And somewhere if He really knew me, He wouldn't accept me. No, you don't understand. He knows you better than you know yourself. And He chose you. You just meditate on that for a while. Get up in the morning when you look in the mirror. Just say, God chose you. Let that sink in. What it, God, ch- think of other people that have chosen you, what it meant to you, that they picked you out. Maybe your spouse. And God chose you. We could stop there. For your self-image, you didn't choose him. In fact, when he began to reveal to me he'd chosen me, I ran from him as fast as I could. And he wasn't discouraged by that. He tracked me down. He wooed me. He sent people across my path. He did what was necessary to get through to me. Wow. Just think of how much he wanted me. Think back to how you got saved. And realize you didn't do any of that. You may have thought you did, but it was God pursuing God. Who knows everything you ever did or ever will do still pursued you and chose you. Well, let's see what he chose you for. That's your calling. Verse 4, just as he chose you in him. And when did he make that choice? Before the foundation of the world. And what did he choose you for? Just so that he could rescue you? No. So that we could be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined. Don't get hung up on that word. That just means planned ahead of time for. He planned ahead of time us for adoption As sons. The psalm says, what is man that you should have regard for him? Think about that. Who am I that God should want me? Who am I? But this verse says, not only did he want me, not only did he choose me, but he didn't just choose me to be in his household as a servant. He didn't just choose me so that I don't have to go to hell. He didn't just choose me to wash me of his sin, my sins. He chose me and did all of that. You understand why he washed you of your sins? He washed you of your sins in the blood of Jesus so that God could put his Holy Spirit in you because a Holy Spirit can't dwell in an unholy vessel. Why did he put his Holy Spirit in you? He put his Holy Spirit in you. That's not the end of it. He put his Holy Spirit in you so that he could birth himself in you. So that you could literally be his child. This was his goal. Romans 8, around verse 29, talks about, for the verse everybody is so famous, familiar with Romans 8 28 says for we know that God causes all things to work for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose but the purpose is in the next verse I think we talked about this last time for whom he foreknew 
He predestined or planned ahead of time that they would be conformed to the image of His Son so that His Son, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Brethren. So God's vision and plan for you, the passion of His heart, was that you would become His child. Not just any relationship with Him, but that of a child with his father. That was the astonishing thing that Jesus revealed when he walked on this earth and preached his gospel. He referred for the first time in all of history to God, Yahweh, as Father. So when his disciples asked him, teach us how to pray, he started out with us. You and I are so familiar with throwing that word around, almost too familiar. Jesus said those words, and it must have shocked them. Our Father in heaven. He predestined you. He planned before the foundation of the earth for the moment when you would come to him and he could fulfill his heart's desire from, that was in him from before this earth was founded that you could become his child. Wow. If Nelson Rockefeller felt like something, imagine what we should feel like. Now, he had to realize he wasn't in that position because of anything he'd done. He was simply in that position because of who his father was. So all we're going to talk about this morning is nothing we we can be proud about or take credit for because it's all by virtue of who our father is. He predestined beforehand. The Bible tells us that, that when, when, when somebody turns to the Lord, that, that the angels rejoice. You know why they rejoice? Because God's been waiting, preparing beforehand for you. We've had four children. With each one of them, two of them came at once. They're twins. But with each of them, once we found out that she was pregnant, there's an anticipation there's a looking forward. There's getting things and preparing things and, you know, planning things and planning names and all those things you go through that, 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 get, that create this expectation. And I still remember the moment when each of them were, I couldn't with the oldest one because it was back at a time when I was not allowed in the delivery room. I was there for everything else. They just wouldn't let me be there when he was, came out. And, 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 but I remember that anticipation of the joy of seeing that child our son, our daughter, now in my hands, in my arms, waiting for that moment. The Bible says that's nothing compared to the anticipation that God, the creator of the universe, who could have anything he wanted and do anything he wanted, nothing compared to the anticipation that was in his heart, waiting for that moment when you would turn to him and allow Christ to come in you so that you could now be born again as his child and he could begin to have a relationship with you. As that begins to sink in, it changes how you see yourself. It changes how you see the circumstances around you and realize that it doesn't matter whether things come or go or things the world turns upside down or at its end because it doesn't change who my father is. It just means I get closer to him and grab his hand. Because as long as I know where daddy is, I know I'm going to be all right. 
He predestines you to adoption. To the praise of the glory of the grace by which he made us accepted. Verse 6. Accepted. He made us accepted. So many people have a problem with feeling accepted and wanted. God made you accepted. You are accepted by him. Listen to your prayers, how you begin your prayers. Because it will tell you a whole lot about how you see God and your relationship with him. We're not going to have time to get to it this morning, but there are verses in here where it talks about how we're to come boldly with confidence to his throne. Why? It's the throne of our daddy. One of the wonderful pictures that I remember back in the, in the 60s when, when President Kennedy was in the, in the Oval Office, and most of you remember this picture. There's a picture of him, whether it's on the phone, sitting back you know, it, it, behind the desk of the Oval Office, and, and, which is the seat, the, the, the seat of power in the, in the world at the time. And, and, and then, but underneath there, there's the photographer caught his little son, John John, playing under the desk. All he knew is it was daddy's office. He didn't understand what that office was. He just knew it was his daddy's office. And he was welcome there. And he was accepted there. Why? Because of who his daddy was. When he walked through all the anterooms that lead into there, they didn't do security checks. They didn't stop and say, we've got to wait and see if you have an appointment. He had a right to walk in. i got a grandson that can walk right into my office no matter what I'm doing. In fact, they'll usher him in. And he'll play on my desk. He'll pick up the phone. He's got a drawer in my credenza that's his drawer. He can put whatever he wants in there. And he'll pick up things. Can I have this, Papa? And some of the things I'll let him have. Some of the things he can't have. But he'll, want to, he'll play in my office. Why? Because of who his Papa is. Your daddy. Your father. is the creator of the universe. And you have a right. You've been accepted. Not because of how good you are. You're accepted in Christ, who is the beloved. You are accepted by him. It's not you have to do things to be accepted. He's talking in these chapters, this chapter, about everything God has already done for you. Everything in here is in the past tense. And in the Greek, this tense is something that was done once and it has a forever implication. It's not a one-time event. It's an event that occurred it's like 43 and a half years, two and a half years ago, we had an event that occurred where we exchanged vows and became married. That vow, that event has gone on for another 42 and a half years. It has a point in time and continues. And that's what the verbs are, the tense of the verbs that are in this chapter. Well, we better go on. This is our calling. Verse 7. In whom? In him. Christ. We have redemption through his blood. Redeemed means to be bought back out of something. And what is that redemption? It's the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, not according to the measure of our works. The forgiveness we have is a measure of the extent of his grace. One of the expressions I like is, we're trophies of His grace. God has a trophy cabinet, and you're in that trophy cabinet, because what's, what, 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 what you, sh- you in that cabinet shows what God's grace is like, not how good you are. 
It doesn't show our, it's not a trophy case of our accomplishments. It's a trophy case of his grace at work in our lives. That's what draws other people. It's what your testimony does. When other people can see what God's done with you, in spite of you, because he loves you, then that gives them hope that God will do those same things for them in spite of themselves because God loves them. The forgiveness of our sins. Verse 8, which he has made to abound towards us. So he's talking about the redemption and our forgiveness and the riches of his grace, which he has made to abound towards us. So he's not just given grace, he's made it to abound towards us. Notice, everything in here is something he did. We're going to get in verse 13, there's something we did. But everything else, he did it. He's made the grace to abound in you. He's made you accepted in the beloved. He chose you. I want to stop there for a second because you're not getting it. It's so instilled in our thinking that we have to contribute to this. Because everything else in our life works this way. You don't get anything you don't earn. You don't get anything you didn't put some effort into it. And the, the biggest obstacle when it comes to coming to Christ is recognizing there's nothing I can bring to Him to cause Him to accept me. And the more I've studied the gospel, the more I've grown in it, the less I know I try to bring to Him. But I still find things in me I'm trying to earn. Little attitudes. I was praying this morning before the service and I, I was done at home. But I looked at my watch and it's like, well, normally I pray up until this period of time. So I, just, I said, well, I better keep praying because I'm not done yet. And I realized it's like punching a clock. I have this routine on Sunday morning that I go downstairs in my prayer closet, which is my furnished room, you know, and I start at such and such a time and I end at such and such a time. But I was done. I'd finished what I needed to talk to him about and I sensed he was finished in here, but yet I felt I still needed to stay there because something was wrong if I didn't fill out my obligation. See how that thinking is so hard to get rid of? Everything we're talking about here, until we get to verse 13, I believe, is something God just did. He chose you. He redeemed you. He forgave you. He made you to be accepted in the beloved. He made his grace to abound towards you. You didn't do any of it. He did it. And I'm glad because he's much more able than I am. I think too small about myself. He did it. Well, let's go on and see some more things he did. Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself. So this was according to his pleasure. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together one in all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth in him. Verse 11, you ready for this one? In him we have obtained an inheritance. In Him, 
in Christ, once you're in Him, you have past tense obtained, become entitled to an inheritance. Part of why that young Rockefeller, working as the assistant to the assistant to the assistant janitor, sweeping out the restrooms and doing whatever menial task he had to do, why he could have confidence doing that is he knew that regardless of that small paycheck he was getting, he also had an inheritance. That inheritance that he had was measured by the wealth and the capacity of his father. Because other people he was working among also undoubtedly eventually had an inheritance. But I would venture to say their inheritance was not quite the same as his. Why? Because their father was not the same as his. Because his father had a greater wealth and a greater capacity to give an inheritance. Now let's think who your father is. Rockefeller collected gold and put it in his vaults. Your father paves his streets with it. His father bought, I'm sure, bought jewelry for his wife that contained pearls, and I'm sure they were beautiful pearls. Your father builds the gates of his city with them. Although his father owned all kinds of companies, the government eventually took them away from him. They broke them up. It was an antitrust violation. Nobody can take anything away from your father. Including and especially the devil. There was a limit on how much his father could leave to him. Because his father didn't own everything. But your father owns everything. Even Rockefeller's father was only a steward of what your father put in his hands. And Paul's telling us that we have, not we'll get someday, we have an inheritance. I'm telling you, you are somebody. Not to the world, but you are somebody to God. In Him also we have an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That means He's working things for you. He's arranging things for you. You understand that Nelson Rockefeller didn't go down and apply for the job himself? Or he may have applied, but the fix was in. Imagine going in for his first job, his first interview. He's filled out the application. Sits down. Think he's nervous? 
Think he's wondering where he's going to get the job? The fix is in. Because it's been predestined. Because his father works all things on his behalf. Well, there was a limit of what his father could do. But there's no limit of what your father can do. So you've been called to something. Verse 12. Now he's going to talk about what we did. This is, how, this is how you got this. This is how you got all this and the rest of what we're going to talk about. In, in verse 12. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. So you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also having believed... Now let's stop there. So how would you get all this? You heard the word, and when you heard the word, the good news, you chose to believe it. That's it. That's it. That's your part. He did all the rest of this. Planned for you before the foundation of the earth. uh, called you, arranged that you could become his child, adopted. You understand what adopted means? See, an adopted child actually has a benefit because we couldn't choose what our kids look like. They ended up looking like us. Fortunately, most of them look like her. But a child that's adopted, the parents say, you, I want you. They know what they're getting. God knew what he was getting. Oh, it's not sinking in. God knew what he was getting when he chose you. God knew what he was getting when he chose you. And all you had to do, the only thing you could do, was simply choose to believe That's it. He did all the rest. And in fact, the only reason you could believe it is he arranged that you hear it. We won't get there today, but you over in chapter 2, it says that we're saved by grace through faith and that faith that it took for you to believe, he had to give you. So the ability to believe, which was all you had to do, the ability to believe, he had to give you that. That's how utterly helpless we are. But it's when we come to realize how utterly helpless we are that he can begin to work in our lives and become real. Because up until that point, we're trying to help him out. Add something. Put our two cents in. So that we can take a little bit. Not much, just a little bit of the credit. But whatever part of you is trying to take the credit, that's a part of you that's keeping God out. The only thing you did was believed and the ability to believe he had to give you. This is your calling. I'll start that verse again. In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom, notice it's your salvation, it's personal. In whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Let's talk about that for a minute. What's that mean? 
Well, the word sealed has two implications to it. One implication is it's a mark or a brand. So if you were out in Texas or the cattle country, instead of saying sealed, you'd say branded, marked. And what does a mark do? A mark identifies who owns you, who you belong to. So they separate the cattle in these cattle drives when they get to the stockyard by the mark that's on the back of them. A mark or a brand is also an indication of approval. If you go to the meat market, I don't know if you still do it. And Jim Bennett used to work for them. I don't know if he still does or not. But, but the FDA will, will approve, or is that what it is? They approve the quality of the meat, that it's up to a certain quality. And how do you know that? Because there's a stamp on there, FDA approved. It's a mark of the approval. So the Holy Spirit, see, if you could see into the spirit realm, you would realize you're marked, you're branded. Because the Spirit of God in you makes you identified as belonging to Him. But the interesting thing is, the Bible does not refer to us as cattle. And it does not refer to pastors and Jesus as the great cattle driver. But the Bible refers to Him as the great shepherd and to pastors as shepherds and as all of us as sheep for several reasons. First of all, sheep have a certain characteristics which we won't go into this morning which are very applicable of Christians. But the other which I believe is more important is this. Shepherds have to lead their sheep because if you cannot, if you try to drive sheep, you drive something from behind You've all seen pictures of the cattle drives on TV, you know, Rawhide and Up to Dates Me and John Wayne. And, well, they got newer things like, you know, Up Dates Me, I realized that. You know, where the, where the men on horses get behind them and go, ha, yeah, yay, and slap their, you know, whips or whatever and get their horse, because they have to drive them. And so they have to surround them and keep. Whereas a shepherd goes in front of the sheep and the sheep follow that shepherd where they go. 23rd Psalm. John chapter 10. Marianne Brown, when she was here, was sharing a story with us. When she was in Israel one time, she was in a tour bus, and the tour bus stopped on the road because there was a crossing in front of them, and it was full of sheep going from one pasture over to another, loads and loads of sheep. I don't remember, hundreds of them. And they were all mixed in together, and among them were a bunch of shepherds. And so she was watching them, and as they finally got all the way to the other side, the shepherds began to break off and one of them went this way, one of them went straight, another went that direction. And the sheep just began to separate on their own. And one group began to follow the shepherd that went over here, another followed this shepherd over here, and another followed this shepherd over here. And so she asked the, the tour guide, she said, how does that happen? He said, well, the shepherd lives among the sheep, spends time with them and develops a relationship with them. And he will go among them and almost every day just kind of stroke them. And as a result is they know his scent. Also, he develops affectionate sounds with them. Because she said, then I noticed that I was hearing and, and this shepherd over here was making like a clicking sound. And this shepherd over here was, whoa, whoa, something like was making sounds. And the sheep just began to follow the scent and the sound. Why? Because a relationship had developed. So 
We're not branded in the sense of we're going to get separated out because the angels look and say, oh, they got that brand on it. It's the scent. It's the drawing. It's the relationship. Now, there's another aspect of the word sealed. It means to provide a protection for. You go to the supermarket now, you can't f- touch the meat, which is good, I'm sure, but because it's sh- shrink-wrapped. So they take a f- fresh piece of meat and they... They wrap it in, in this plastic stuff and they suck the air out of it, create a vacuum and it shrinks down around it. And what that does is it keeps out impurities and keeps in the nutrients. So the Holy Spirit not only marks you as belonging to God, but He also provides a protection if we'll walk with Him. A protection that keeps us from the evil one. And all we do is believe and He gives us His Spirit to do that in our lives. Well, let's look, go on. Because this actually kind of builds. It gets better and better. Verse 14, And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. What's that talking about? When you came to Christ, God came to live in you by putting His Spirit in you. I think it's Ezekiel 36 prophesies that. I'll take out your heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in it. And not only that, I'll put my spirit in you. God's put his spirit in you. That's what made you alive unto him. That's what makes you his child. God's put his spirit in you. And you're born again. You have his nature in you. But have you noticed that didn't change how you thought? The day after you were saved, your mind still works the same way it did before. If you notice, your body looks the same. It may not, see, mine doesn't look the same as when I got saved now. It doesn't look better. It looks older. And it still causes trouble. Every temptation you ever deal with comes at you somehow through your flesh. And so the great hope Paul talks about is the hope when the redemption of our salvation is completed. What he's talking about is the redemption of our body. Romans 8.11 says, If the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He will also quicken or make alive your mortal body. The redemption of your body is going to come by the power of the Spirit, the resurrection power of the Spirit that's in you right now. You are the container of the very power that's going to transform your body. And so that's what he's talking about. He is the guarantee of that. The Greek word is arabon. An arabon is a guarantee. It, it, in what a guarantee means or a deposit means, it is a prepayment of something that's to come. And the purpose of a deposit is so that you now have in your hands, you now have in your possession, something to give you confidence that the rest of what's been promised to you is going to come. So if you've ever bought or sold a house, you've discovered that buying or selling it, a deposit's involved. So if you're going to buy a house, they don't just want your word you want it, they want... They want a down payment, a deposit. Because they want to know that you're serious. So if you'll part with that 10%, that tells them that there's an assurance, that there's an intention on your part, serious intention to go through with it because you've already let go of 10% of it. That's a message sometime, but we're not going there. (laughs) Not only is a deposit a a payment in a head, but it's also a payment of the same kind or material. So if you're buying a house, they don't want a deposit of leaves. They don't want 10% of your clothing that you're going to eventually put in the closets. 
you're going to pay them money. They want a deposit of money. So the deposit is also of the same kind, the same material, the same substance that the rest of the promise is. And so what this says is God has given us an inheritance. We already looked at it. You have that inheritance now. Because God understands that just because we have it now doesn't mean we have confidence in it. Oh, I never saw this before. It's not just so that we'll have confidence in it, but we've got to learn how to walk in it. If John D. Rockefeller suddenly adopted you and picked you up and brought you to his house and put you in a bedroom there, you'd have to learn how to operate. Servants would come to you and say, what do you want? You wouldn't know how to deal with that situation. You wouldn't know how to deal with, with that wealth and with, you, you, because you've got to learn how to operate and handle the inheritance. Oh, you ready? So one of the assignments, I've never taught this before, one of the assignments of the Holy Spirit is to prepare you and train you to handle the inheritance and the rest of it because He's a portion of it that's given to you right now. So it's incumbent on me to get to know Him so that I can be getting familiar with my inheritance. Most of you are thinking of money. But money is only a means to acquire what you need. Right? Money in itself has no value. Countries that have gone through collapse find that out overnight. It was devalued. So what was a $100 bill today is a dollar bill tomorrow because it's a piece of paper. So the money just represents the ability to have what you want and you need and the inheritance that God has for you. It's not based on money. It's based on the promises of God and His character and His relationship with you. You think Nelson Rockefeller worried about how much cash he had in his pocket? You think you worried about that? Why? Because of his father was. Just pick up the phone and say, Dad, I'm a little short today. Dad wouldn't even send any money. He'd just call somebody. Say, Nelson's there. He's in the restaurant. He forgot his wallet. I'll take care of it. No problem. Sir, whatever you want. Didn't need money. Jesus didn't need it. He had it. He didn't need it. Why? They were having trouble. Peter was worried about collecting, paying the taxes. Jesus wasn't worried about it, but Peter was. So Jesus taught Peter a lesson. He says, all right, here's what you do. You go down to the seashore where Peter was used to working. That's where his business had been. And you just throw in a line. And when you get a fish, open his mouth. See what's in it. You'll find enough money to pay the taxes. They're out in a the field. They're all worried about, how, we don't have enough food to pay, feed the people. Jesus said, just, what, do, what do you have? Well, bring it to me. And Jesus thanked God for it and blessed it. And everybody had enough to eat. And there were 12 baskets left over. Jesus was teaching them a lesson because when they got into a boat to go to the other side in Luke's account, they discovered they forgot their lunch and they were all worried about it. And Jesus is trying to talk to them about the leaven of the Pharisees and they're all worried. And he, says, he says, guys, this is my paraphrase, guys, you missed the lesson when I fed the 5,000. You missed the other feeding that I did. Don't you understand? You don't have to worry about what you need. My father will take care of you. Why? Because he's your 
Father. So the Holy Spirit is given to us as a down payment, as a deposit, so that we can get familiar with this kingdom that is our inheritance, that's in us now. It's not just in the by and by. He's in us now. He wants us to walk in that inheritance that's been given to us now to walk in the things of God, but you walk in them by your relationship with the Spirit of God because these are heavenly blessings, in spirit, spiritual blessings given to us in heavenly places, but we can enjoy them here. The word spiritual blessing actually means spirit given or spirit imparted. So he's in you to train you how to live in this kingdom that's your inheritance. We're going to have to end here. The hope of your calling. I therefore, Paul, urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. We've just touched this morning on your calling, your pedigree, your background, your family's resume. That's who you are this morning, right now, if you're in Christ. You belong to Him. That just takes care of fear. I belong to Him. I don't know how he's going to do it. There's some things I just know how he's going to do in our life. I don't worry about it because I know he's going to take care of it. I look back. I was in with the men yesterday praying and I was going back over things God's done. Situations I've been in and not known what the answer was going to be. Not seeing how there was going to be a provision for this. Not seeing where the end. And having God every time come through and I started weeping in here. God, how could I ever doubt you would do that again? You're here today because God loves you and has watched over you and directed you. You're alive today and in Christ because He loves you and has chosen you. That's who you are. What we have to do is renew our mind to who we are. Get up in the morning, look in that mirror, and instead of going, oh, look in that mirror and say, that is, you are a child of God. He chose you. Talk to yourself. He chose you. So for me to question that choice is to question God. What right do I have to question His choice? If I had hidden things from Him and He didn't know, that'd be one thing. But there's nothing hidden from His sight. Amen. 